The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Inside Out with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, why are we going back to war and do we know what we're doing? Most everyone is sickened by the Islamic State, that's ISIS, and its gruesome actions. But do we have any idea what caused it or what to do about it? Do you? Are you up in arms calling for action without knowing what will work? Or are you acquiescing to military action but trying not to think about it? Do you have more opinions than information? Do you feel upset and fearful of reprisals? Do you know the difference between Islam and the people who say they represent it? What are the causes of this kind of violence anyway? Does violence end violence? If you are ready to confront these questions, stay tuned, and once again we'll welcome Professor Jim Gelvin of UCLA, who will help us with the facts. And this time we'll look at the statements and response of Muslims, responses to IS, and responses to our own military actions. War is not a game. So let's use this time to tone down the rhetoric and tune up our information and awareness. So call in with your comments or questions and join the discussion. Or join the post-show forum, and you can do that by clicking on the link on the right side of the host page. And now, here's Beth from the Inside Out. Good afternoon. Hi, Jim. Welcome back to Inside Out. Glad to be here. Uh, Yes, well, I'm glad you're here, too. I guess uh, anybody who's somewhat aware and realizes that, that we seem to be slipping back into war in Iraq, and uh, President Obama seems to be trying to put together some kind of coalition. But one of the things that I've noticed that has been a little bit different this time, to, at least it appears to be different to those of us who are not, you know, deeply engaged and not very knowledgeable, is there seems to be more response from the Muslim world than we've seen before in terms of fatwas being issued and religious Muslims speaking up that this does not represent Islam. Is that true, Jim, or is that just what hits the news media? Uh, that's very much what hits the news media. Um, there was a uh, outcry of anger from the Muslim community around Muslim communities around the world, actually, after 9/11. Um, the support, for example, for Al Qaeda uh, among Muslims themselves um, has dropped to its lowest level um, in history uh, since polling was polls were taken starting in uh, 2001. So uh, I think the idea that all of a sudden Muslims are turning around or coming on to one side or another, I think that idea is, is very, uh, uh, it's not very true. The, the problem is, is that we just don't pay attention to what's going on mm-hmm. out there. We much prefer to, uh, for example, focus in on the Karadawis and people like that, on the statements that they make, um, uh, which tend to be inflammatory at various points. Uh, as opposed to, for example, more moderate, moderate voices that have been there, were there, and probably will continue to be there. 
I'm glad you said that because um, I was impacted by seeing more in the news about the Muslim responses, and I was very happy to see it. And uh, I did wonder about that question, and I think that uh, where I'd like to start today is really talking about the difference between Islam and many of the people who claim to represent it. Uh, there is a an organization, you know, I, I don't have a very good memory, <laughs> so I never remember names, but it was um, uh, the Forum for Peace in Muslim Societies, for example. Uh, I think that the, the Sheikh bin Baya, bin Baya um, is the leader of that group, and he was actually mentioned by President Obama and his speech to the UN uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the kinds of things that, uh, that these uh, religious uh, Muslims are saying is that this is not Islam. Now, it is interesting that people use Islam as an excuse, but they and also there was a number of clerics around the world who uh, had a, a, a press conference uh, not long ago actually went point by point about what is not Islamic about what ISIS is doing and what so many of these terrorists do, are, are doing. And uh, they, they talked about um, that jihad is not supposed, this is not what jihad is supposed to be, uh, that you're not supposed to have a bunch of vigilantes running around usurping the power and uh, beheading people, that um, there is... Um, that peace and diplomacy are always the number one. And that's, I mean, actually, when you look at the life of Muhammad, that certainly uh, is the case. So there's not supposed to be forced uh, conversions. Can you, Jim, can you elaborate more on what it is the essence of the religious argument? I'm not even talking about the social argument against these extremists, but the religious argument of those who are saying this does not represent us these people are mentally unbalanced. Well, I'm always reluctant to do that simply because I'm always reluctant to enter into somebody else's religious tradition and vomit yeah. it, for example, and say, this is not Islam. These people yeah. represent their, as themselves as Islam. I mean, I'm talking about ISIS right now. Uh, they say they are Islam. Other people within the uh, Islamic community say they do not represent us. Um, uh, so that is just something that the community itself uh, would have to decide in the same way that within the Protestant community or the Jewish community or the Catholic community, uh, that's the community that sort of decides what is beyond the realm and what is uh, a legitimate form of dissent within the community itself. I mean, that being said, we see these sorts of movements arise at various points in history. They have arisen before, they probably will arise in the future. Um, sometimes we notice them, sometimes we don't notice them, sometimes they're extraordinarily violent, sometimes they're quieter, sometimes they, they move away from, for example, what they consider to be uh, the impurity of, of the modern world. So uh, we see the whole variety of these groups that do emerge um, within the Muslim community. Uh, but again, to sort of like pass judgment like these people are doing with each other, it's something that you and I really can't do. It has to be an internal Islamic debate. I totally agree with that, and I'm sorry if I, it sounded like I was asking you to pass judgment. I was just pointing out that these are some of the things that are being brought up by other Muslims who 
also who are respected in the Muslim community, just so that people have, because the, some people will not even know that this is going on, that there are people who have significant voices uh, who are speaking up. And um, w w whether I judge it as correct or incorrect is totally irrelevant. I, I completely <laughs> I concur. Well, let me uh, just add some things that are not majority opinions with, or far from majority opinions within the Islamic community, the worldwide Islamic community. I mean, mm -hmm. slavery, for example, was the last state that outlawed, or Muslim-dominated state, that uh, outlawed slavery was Mauritania in 1981. Uh, this is a, um, therefore, a community that has rejected overall slavery, uh, whereas mm -hmm. these people are doing are enslaving people. Uh, yes. They are um, uh, doing things like mass rapes. I think that one of the doctrinal issues, the most important doctrinal issue that uh, separates these people, even from Al-Qaeda, is something called takfir. It's the idea that if somebody does not practice their Islam like you think they should, you can say that they're not really Muslim. Mm -hmm. And that cast, and then cast them out of the community, declare them apostates, and that gives you license to kill them. Uh, and this is something they've done, for example. They've killed many Muslims, um, you know, for example, Iraqi soldiers. Um, they declare Shi'is not to be Muslims, so they're, uh, they have a license to kill Shi'is as well. Shi'is, just for the audience sake, uh, Shi'is is another large, uh, I don't know if you would want to call it sect, or branch of Islam. It's one of the two major branches of Islam. There are a number of sects within Islam, then there are these two branches of, of, of Islam. And m most of these sort of sects belong to one of the branches or another. Um, the Yazidis are something different. Um, they're a religion that dates only back as far as the 15th century is concerned. Uh, they're a very eclectic religion. They've picked up elements of a little of Islam, a little of Zoroastrianism, uh, a little of Christianity. They've combined them into a, um, a, a, a syncretic religion. Um, and um, there's somebody who uh, has, it's actually fighting on two fronts. On the one hand, they're fighting against ISIS, and on the other hand, uh, being mainly Kurdish, they're also fighting against the Turks. Um, and so we have you know, real problems there as well. Being Kurdish, they're also fighting against the Iraqis, who, you know, yeah. who have even as bad an opinion of Kurds as uh, the Turks do. So what we're seeing is these multi-level uh, uh, disagreements that are taking place. But as I said, the most important thing has to be with this notion of takfir, which, you know, um, for example, um, the most esteemed Sunni uh, religious institution, Al-Azhar, has condemned not only takfir, but also has called for a, 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 a closer relationship between Sunnis and Shi'is. Mm -hmm. So this might be termed mainstream Islam. This is what a majority of Muslims do. And it, within the at least a Sunni community, the way Islam works is by consensus. In other words, it goes back to the first community under Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad is reported to have said that my community will never agree on an error, which mm. means that when a majority of the community believes something, like, for example, Al-Qaeda or Sons of Bitches, or that um, uh, enslavement is wrong, or that murdering Yazidis is wrong, when a majority of the community believes that, that is what becomes law. 
That's so fascinating because I think that, and I'm not just blaming outsiders for this, I think we have the idea that, that Islamic law came from Muhammad, you know, the Sharia, uh, that it all came from Muhammad, and he said all of this, which is not necessarily true, and that this is it, and they're carrying forward for 2,000, well, it's 1,500 years, or for these, uh, these laws, and that there is no movement or evolution in Islamic beliefs and culture. And what you're saying is that, you know, Muhammad himself said that that can't be true. Yes, I mean, and, and, you know, basically what the people who say that are fundamentally repeating Al-Qaeda's line, which mm-hmm. is, it's, there's something called Salafism, which is all, um, the idea that the way you know what is correct, the way you go about finding the truth within Islam is to go back to the original community, which was the ideal community, the one that Muhammad set up on the one hand, and on the other hand, to the foundational texts. There are two of them. There's a Quran, um, which is an emanation of God. It's not, it's not a book. It's not the equivalent of the Bible. If there is an equivalent in Christianity to the Quran, it's Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have the Quran and something called the Hadith, which are the collections of the sayings of the Prophet, um, and his companions. And people, uh, the, the Salafis, um, who you might have heard of, the Anur party, for example, in, in Egypt, Al-Qaeda is a Salafi group, of the whole variety of Salafi groups that, that have emerged. Salafis say that the only thing that we know is true comes from those basic sources. Now, a majority of Muslims are not Salafis. A majority of Muslims adhere to one of five schools of thought. Four of them are within the Sunni tradition, one of which is within the Shi tradition. Um, And these develop much later. um, And they put together a whole variety of, used a whole variety of sources. And let me just say one thing about Salafism, because it gets a very, very bad name, the idea of going back to the original sources. You can be a Salafi, and you can find all sorts of things in those original sources. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean... Muhammad, for example, prohibited female infanticide. And he also said that women, uh, that a man could not marry more than four women. Um, And if he did, he had to treat them all justly. Now, those of us who have been married know how difficult it is to treat all women justly. Feminists say that what Muhammad was was a a proto-feminist, that, you know, he uh, believed that, you know, uh, women um, should have rights just like men. When Muhammad died, for example, the elders of the community came into the community and uh, came around um, and they met together and um, they decided who was going to be the successor to Muhammad, the the caliph as he was called, which just basically comes from the Arabic word khalifa, which means caliph. Um, So modern Salafis looking at that saying, hey, you know what that is? That's a parliament meeting together. And then the first caliph had to swear allegiance to the community, that he would defend the community, and the community had to uh, uh, swear allegiance to the caliphs. And so modernist Salafis say, hey, you know what that is? That's a constitution. So all these things forecast very early on in um, uh, Islam according to modernist Salafis. We don't find a lot of them very much anymore. We find mainly people who become more, more secular Muslims uh, defending those sort of ideas. But they were very important in the 19th century, and, and they still exist to this very day. 
I think that's fascinating. And I also feel that, you know, we uh, in the West have a, a very short sense of history. In fact, we don't even know much about our own history, much less the history of anyone else. And I do, I do see exactly what you're saying about Muhammad, that for, I mean, he, he, what he was proposing was so radically better for women. And to see him in his own context, and beyond that, to see him in his world where he had a job uh, which was so difficult at that time of trying to create this community with the one God. You know, when you look at the kind of choices that he had to make and you think, oh my God, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. I wouldn't want to have to make those <laughs> those decisions about how to support this community and this belief system and protect it against all of this, uh, you know, raging people who are against you. Yes, I mean, you know, it was a tough neighborhood. I mean, <laughs> it really was. <laughs> this is the Arabian Peninsula, after all. Uh, in those days, it was, uh, it was organized very strongly along tribal and family lines. Um, Muhammad belonged to the most, one of the most powerful tribes in Mecca, but he was, um, his particular clan was not a particularly important clan within that tribe. Um, but the thing about monotheism is very interesting because uh, Muslims themselves put themselves within the Abrahamic tradition. They put themselves within the tradition of Judaism and Christianity. The idea is that fundamentally, the fundamental um, um, emanation from God, the fundamental rule that God wants you to know is that there is no God but God. There is only one God, period, okay? And uh, the reason why we know this is that the seal of the prophets, the last of the prophets, Muhammad, told us so. There's going to be no more uh, um, uh, uh, prophets after Muhammad. Now, the story that Muslims say is that, you know, people are born, you know, the natural religion is Islam, that people are born Muslim. Um, but then they get screwed up in certain ways. For example, um, the Jews got the exact same message, and um, they distorted it uh, by claiming to be the chosen people. Um, the Christians got the same message, but they distorted it by saying that uh, Jesus was the Son of God. Well, for Muslims, uh, many of the Jewish prophets, uh, many of the, um, uh, well, the, Jesus Christ himself is considered to be a prophet. Um, they have no supernatural powers whatsoever. Uh, they're part and parcel of God's giving the message. They're equivalent to uh, Muhammad. Muhammad is just the last of this line of people who are going to bring in the message. Yes, and the, uh, which also touches on something that would be so helpful for people to realize. Uh, we're going to be taking a break in a minute, but when we come back, I want to start uh, asking you some questions about ISIS, and uh, especially I want to start with, you know, are you surprised by the, the military success that it's having? Um, but, uh, but before uh, saying that, I just want to say that we're laying a kind of foundation here of acknowledgement that on some level, you know, Muslims are our brothers and sisters. And that, you know, even from a cultural perspective, because so much of, of the American uh, belief system, and I'm not saying it's better, I'm not saying it's better than Buddhism or Hinduism or anything like that. I'm just talking about family. Do you know what I mean for better or worse? That there is such a a unity uh, in you know fundamental beliefs among uh, 
christened Jews and Muslims, uh, notwithstanding the differences that you're sharing, Jim. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's always good for us to remember the oneness before we go in and talk about what's wrong with other people. So uh, we're going to go to commercial break. Please feel free to call in with your questions and uh, stay with us because there's a lot more on Inside Out. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, bethgreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is Beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Welcome back to Inside Out. Our guest today is Professor Jim Gelvin of UCLA, Professor of Modern Middle Eastern History. And, uh, you know, I promised that I was going to ask Jim why he thinks uh, ISIS is, so, is having so many successes, or shall we say the other side is having so many failures. But, uh, you know, even though I promised that, there is something else that came to mind a second ago that I'd like us to just to speak on briefly before we get to that, which is that there is such a difference between culture and religion, but we have them confused. So, um, especially when we're not familiar. So, for example, uh, you know, it is, it's not necessarily Islam that women have to wear a veil. You know, that I think came more from the Turks. And that in different countries, there are different, and in different cultures, there are different traditions. And that's that's true everywhere. You know, we all have a different way. And yet, when we see people of a, of a certain religion with a certain culture, we can confuse that. And in fact, they can confuse it. I know that in the religion that I grew up with, uh, which is Judaism, I have absolutely no idea what really comes out of the, the, the teachings and what is just the way, it was, the way we did it. You know, whether uh, wearing a wig when you were, <laughs> you know, in Eastern Europe was really had anything to do with Judaism for women who had to cut their hair off after they got married. So, you know, is this Eastern European Judaism and so on? So I think that that's something that 
uh, we have to be aware of, and I am not an expert in this field, but wouldn't you say that that's true, Jim? It's very true. It's um, you know uh, true in India and Pakistan, where, for example, Muslims have adopted some of the customs that were there. You know, it's true in the Sudan, where there's female circumcision, and uh, in Egypt also there's female circumcision, which is not a common practice in Islam uh, in Islamic countries, but it comes from the generalized. You know, the air that people breathe, the culture, whatever you want to call it. You know, we, we, we social scientists are now trying to stay away from the word, word culture. But there's something very interesting going on now in the United States, which is the development of an American Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something we've never seen before. And what American Islam is, is what you do is, uh, for example, the mosques that I talk at uh, consists of Sunnis and Shis, people from um, Iran, large Iranian contingent, but also people from Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, you know, who are living in an American environment, who share the same space, um, and so who therefore have to come to some sort of an arrangement as to how to pray, you know, what to do in terms of uh, community affairs and things like that. And it's, it's uh, something that has been over the last 10 or 15 years or so become increasingly on the agenda. It's the same thing as, uh, for example, uh, the Pope always getting angry at this American Catholicism where yeah. a majority of American Catholics believe in birth control and divorce and abortion and so on and so forth, in spite of the fact that the teachings of the Catholic Church are very different. Islam is not as centralized as Catholicism, and so it's much easier for it to be syncretic, to pick, to pick up um, mm-hmm. cultural uh, things that are going on on the outside. And that's very hopeful also for a variety of reasons. You see these Islamic parties that develop in places like Tunisia and Egypt and, and uh, uh, Turkey and various other places, and um, they adhere to certain ideas in terms of Islam, um, but also the political arena that they join is a political arena now that is heavily uh, influenced by forces such as uh, human rights, uh, notions Mm -hmm. of human rights, notions of democracy, and so on and so forth. When people say, okay, these guys are just going towards human rights or for democracy out of pure opportunism, uh, there's two answers to that question. Number one, um, this is the arena. These are the people who call the shots. The second answer to that is opportunism is the price of admission that you have to pay to participate. And mm. it also collects its own tax on you. In other words, it sets the goals that you can fight for. It sets the, the strategies that you can use. In other words, fundamentally, these people, uh, these political Islamists, are now within a situation in which the, uh, there are universal values of human rights and democracy that they too are being touched by. And where would you say are the uh, the the strongest pockets of those people? Well, Indonesia comes to mind first, uh, and uh, to Tunisia definitely. Here, here's what happened in Tunisia, right? Compared to Egypt, which was just a mess. Uh, but in Tunisia, what you had was a popular elected party, uh, the uh, Anahta party, uh, wins a plurality of the votes in parliament, uh, and then decides, look, what we can't do is we can't rule all by ourselves, because this would make people who voted against us very suspicious. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is form a government, not of Islamic parties, but form a government that's made up of uh, us, 
and secular parties as well. So it's called the Troika, after the three horses that, you know, ran uh, in front of a Russian sleigh. Um, they uh, ran the government for a while. There was a great deal of hostility towards them. Um, some of it justified, some of it not. Uh, there were assassinations of two parliamentarians uh, by ex Muslim extremists. Uh, and many people felt that uh, the government was responsible or had not done enough. Um, and at the same time, um, the uh, regime remnants, those who were left over from the regime, certainly did not like the idea of them being excluded from the regime. So they formed together into a, an opposition party against the government called Nidat Tunis, you know, the call of Tunisia. And uh, they put a great deal of pressure on Nafta. And finally, the head of Nidat Tunis and the head of Nafta met. And they decided, we are not going to do Egypt. We are not going to be Egypt. We are not going to have a military takeover. We are not going to have a fierce repression. So, Ennahda, uh, which ran the Constituent Assembly, uh, voted overwhelmingly for the most liberal constitution in Arab history. It's a, wow. it's a constitution that does not mention Sharia law, and that gives women equal rights unconditionally. Mm. At the same time, soon thereafter, what they did was they dismissed their own government. And they said, okay, they call for new elections. They didn't have to, but they, called, they said, okay, look, if this is going to defuse the crisis, we'll do it. And this is what they did. Tunisia is the only real success story that we have so far out of the uh, Arab uh, uprisings, but it's an important success story because there are all sorts of contingent reasons in various places why success was averted. For example, uh, in Bahrain, there was an invasion from the outside. Um, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates invaded Bahrain uh, and helped keep the government in place. Mm. Uh, you know, in uh, Egypt, what you had was a very stupid president who uh, was very exclusive in terms of who he would allow in the government, so on and so forth. Um, and he was up against a great deal of opposition, but he handled it badly, and he was overthrown by the military. So, in, in, in many of these places, uh, contingent factors the stupidity of the only person who uh, they would let run from the Muslim Brotherhood, the judiciary would let run from the Muslim Brotherhood, who became president of, of uh, Egypt, um, in Bahrain, uh, an invasion from the outside, um, et cetera, et cetera. These things happen uh, throughout the Arab world, which is why we see at the present time not a completely successful Arab, Arab uprising, set of Arab uprisings, but the one thing that can give us hope is the fact that what the Arab uprisings do indicate is that not only secularists, but Islamists as well, have heard the call for human rights and democracy. That is very hopeful and very exciting. You know, uh, I'd like to get to this, this political situation that we're facing, at, but I'm glad again that we have more knowledge and more background so that we have a better understanding of what we're facing. I mean, we don't have these black and white images. And one of the thoughts that comes to mind frequently is that the United States is in such a strange situation because we are very strong allies of Saudi Arabia, which is extremely violent, you know, very repressive government, and uh, also very strict. And yet uh, they're our best friends, you know. <laughs> And then, but ISIS isn't. And I'm not saying that ISIS is good, but I'm saying that, you know, there's, there's politics. Uh, we've been talking about, uh, you know, uh, religion and spirituality and 
people's, I, I guess, you know, people's desires to be free. And now we're t- talking about politics and what we do and the kind of alliances that we make and, and the kind of uh, alliances that the United States also has made and how many blunders we've already made in the Middle East. And uh, my concern is, what are we doing now? So first, to answer my question, are you surprised at, these, uh, at ISIS military success, and what do you attribute it to? Well, um, ISIS pretty much came out of nowhere. Um, so, I mean, we, we've been blindsided by multiple things in the last couple of years, so I'm not surprised by anything anymore. <laughs> um, the uh, reason why ISIS so, you know, was able to construct whatever it is that is constructed he calls it a caliphate, um, has to do with two factors, two mainly. I mean, first of all, ISIS is a very small organization. Uh, the area that they've conquered is sparsely populated, except for the city of Mosul. Uh, the most of the area that they conquered is desert, and the reason why they conquered it is because that's where the oil is, places like Hasaki in, in, in Syria. Um, and uh, what's going on in Syria at the present time is, as described by one activist, it's Mad Max meets the Sopranos. It's <laughs> <laughs> gangs were fighting over oil wells, fundamentally, because that's where the money is. They smuggle the oil into Turkey, they sell the oil, they get the money that way. They don't need Gulf money anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason why ISIS was able to win as much as it did was because of the coalition that it had built and because of the nature of the Iraqi government. The coalition consists of these religious nuts, on the one hand, uh, tribesmen, whose Islam, by the way, is very different from the Islam of, um, of ISIS. Uh, they tend to take a more uh, lackadaisical, let's say, view towards Islam than ISIS, although it would be difficult to imagine taking a stronger view of Islam than ISIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, former uh, Baathi army officers who had fought under Saddam Hussein who were able to direct the campaign that ISIS won. And it was for these reasons that ISIS was able to do this lightning strike. But the reason why they were able to be victorious was because of what was going on in Iraq beforehand. Nouria Maliki, who was a uh, prime minister who had been uh, in exile under uh, Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. Uh, uh, the opposition party, the major opposition Dawa party that uh, Maliki was a member of is Shi. Um, you know, so as soon as he wins the election, uh, Maliki, he begins to do the exact same thing that Saddam Hussein did when he was president of, of Iraq, which was he began to oppress um, the other community, um, give yeah. orders to his community. Uh, it's only, it has really nothing to do with religion per se. It has to do with the fact that, you know, your, your community is going to be loyal to your you and that... Uh, if you're afraid of a coup d'etat, well, you might as well bring those people who are closest to you uh, around you. So that's what Maliki was doing. So he was firing people right and left who were Shi. And then there was a rebellion that took place in western Iraq, uh, western Iraq uh, a mainly Shi area of western Iraq, um, that uh, started out as peaceful protests. Uh, and then Maliki met them with extraordinary violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, bombs, the sort of thing that Hafez, uh, excuse me, Bashar al-Assad used and uses in Syria. So uh, all of a sudden, you have this extraordinarily polarized situation. Uh, ISIS invades from Syria. You have tribesmen who are already, you know, appalled at what's going on. You have Baathi officers who are appalled at what's going on in in Iraq. And at best, they sat on their hands 
And at worst, what they did was they joined in with ISIS. Now, mm -hmm. the problem is this. It's an impossible coalition to keep together. They're not, you know, these guys are not the religious nuts. Mm -hmm. uh, the Baathis are secular. The tribesmen are sort of like, um, they, they want less government control. They want a more responsive government to them. They want to basically protect their co-religionists, their co-Sunnis. This is why they're participating in this. This is not work going to work under an, an ISIS-dominated government. So as slick as ISIS is, as slick as its propaganda is, um, it's living on borrowed time. Uh, is it uh, your opinion that ISIS is recruiting uh, significantly from outside the area? It depends what you mean by significantly. We have no numbers. Every, every time you hear a number, just think to yourself, this person doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> so I, I believe day, that. Same day that we got the number of about 12 Americans, or about a dozen, uh, from the head of Homeland Security, the head of the CIA said there were 391. Now, the, <laughs> is, the other rule of thumb is when they don't say something like about, when they are precise, that means they are either uh, lying or they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> so, I like this. <laughs> so you don't know, okay? Now, the other question is, I mean, Europe has far more uh, because there's a great deal more dissatisfaction among Muslims in Europe than there are yeah. here. We have yeah. a totally different way in which we bring immigrants into the United States, even darker-skinned immigrants into the United States than they do in various places, in France, for example, or in Britain. So there's a probably higher. So the question that you're really asking is, are these people going to come back and blow us up? Oh, actually, I wasn't thinking that, but oh. that's a good question. <laughs> that's the question that I'm thinking all the time. Everybody's been concentrating on that particular question. Okay, well, good. So See, then, that is, uh, number one, who knows? But, okay, the people that are, um, are recruited from the United States tend to be people with no ties. This guy, this wonderfully named, um, um, what's his name, um, uh, MacArthur uh, McCain, um, I forgot the general's first name, uh, Douglas MacArthur McCain, uh, who was a um, drifter, never graduated high school. Probably never fired a gun in his life because he wasn't a gangbanger like some of them who, who got recruited from jails and so on and so forth. So he goes over there and he becomes a suicide bomber probably because he's not worth anything to them other than to blow himself up. But the other ones, imagine it this way. You're an idealistic kid, 19, 20, 21 years old, angry at your circumstances in the United States. You go over to join ISIS. You are basically put into a, a training camp. Uh, you uh, sneak out for a smoke, and you're warned if you do that again, we're going to behead you. <laughs> uh, next step is that basically you're thinking to yourself, God, I would really like to smoke some dope or maybe uh, have a drink. Uh-uh, that ain't going to happen, okay? <laughs> then they sit there, you know, innocently, and they say, hey, come watch this, and they behead somebody. If you don't come back with PTSD after that, if, you're not told, if your brain isn't totally wrecked by that, then nothing is going to wreck your brain. Why do we assume these people are going to come back as jihadis as opposed to come back as people who are going to enter into uh, psychiatric wards? Oh, my God. Uh, the statistic that we have from al-Qaeda is that one, only one out of nine fighters who come back 
uh, are not coming back disillusioned, are coming back as committed, still committed jihadis. This is the European statistic. Okay, the American statistic is probably even more. There was an article a while ago about all these Somali kids who were joining Shabab, and the reason why they were joining Shabab, which is a Somali group um, affiliated with um, Al Qaeda, was because Somalia, in order to put down uh, a Shabab, Ethiopia Christians had invaded um, uh, Somalia, so they were defending their homeland. They were nationalists. They weren't really. Yeah. And within a few days, they were telephoning home, Mom, get me out of this. Oh, my gosh. That sort of stuff is going on. So, you know, all these predictions about, you know, I'm on this campaign right now. I'm trying to make chicken little into a verb. (laughs) (laughs) This guy is not going to fall. We are chicken littling this. Okay, we have got to go to commercial break. But stick with us because I have more questions for Jim, Jim Gelvin. This has been so illuminating as well as fun. Uh, so uh, we're going to break now, but don't go away. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Bring Beth into your world in person or via the Internet. Learn how by visiting her website, BethGreen.org. At the website, sign up for her newsletter to keep abreast of her latest activities, blogs, videos, and more. Just for signing up, you'll receive a free PDF copy of Living with Reality, her 688-page volume that helps us understand ourselves in relatable terms, as well as offers a proven program to heal and co-create a better world. But there's more. Learn about Beth's four other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Check out her gorgeous music, which is heartfelt and mystical. Become acquainted with Beth and James's programs for healing and training, and discover their community, the Stream Center for the New Spirituality, which welcomes you wherever you are in the world. All this and more can be found at Beth's website, www.bethgreen.org. Again, that's bethgreen.org. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. You're tuned in to Inside Out with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To reach us on the show, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. If you'd rather send us an email, the address is Beth at bethgreen.org. Now, back to Inside Out. Welcome back. We're talking to Jim Gelvin, professor of of modern Middle Eastern history at UCLA. So we're really at the question now of what's our role, what do we do? And as a, just as a human being, as a spiritual teacher, as a counselor, you know, I always see that when we're in complete panic, we don't make good decisions. I'm talking about that. That could be, you know, my dog is barking, my kid is screaming, I just lost my job, or, uh, you know, I'm being threatened with being beheaded by, uh, you know, some nut. So I, it, whatever we do, and I'm hoping that we've already established more of a sense of calm that awareness and knowledge can give us so that we can go on to the next question without being so reactive and so fear-based. So there you go. I'd like to ask you, Jim, what 
what do you think we should do? Um, if you have anything you'd like to share about what we've already done, <laughs> uh, I'd like to hear that as well. Well, I, you know, the entire strategy is just, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, Obama says that what he wants to do is build an international coalition to degrade and destroy uh, the Islamic State, which is all fine and good. Um, but uh, degrading it is one thing with air power, and you could certainly do that. And there's this wonderful article I read that was entitled, We Spend $500,000 to Destroy a $30,000 Pickup Truck. <laughs> the air campaign seems to be all about. But we have been able to, for example, save Sinjar. We have been able to have some effect in slowing the advance um, you know, elsewhere. Uh, so air power is, is not the answer, but it can certainly degrade the capabilities of the organization. After that, what Obama wants to do is to build a National Guard on a provincial level in, in Iraq, uh, uh, the provinces are homo fairly homogeneous, which means that a provincial national guard would be almost entirely Sunni or almost entirely Shi or almost entirely Kurdish, which means that uh, this grouping would not be, uh, would be more, uh, let's say, um, uh, would, would, would contain overall all the elements of Iraqi society. And that's, that's what the idea is. And be under local leadership. So Sunnis would be under local Sunni governor, and Shis would be under local Shi governors, and so on and so forth. That's the idea. Now, here's the thing. We don't have that yet. How long is it going to take us to build that? Mm -hmm. But the other thing that we want to do is to build, build a moderate, whatever that means, remember, we do call this Saudi, uh, Soviet, uh, excuse me, this is Saudis moderates. Right. <laughs> We want to build a moderate opposition force um, in Saudi Arabia and in Turkey of about 5,000 people that will go in and turn the tide against ISIS. Well, we don't know how many people are in ISIS. You know, we, we have no clue how many people. There's uh, some estimates run as low as 4,000, some estimates run as high as 34,000. We just don't really know. Uh, they probably had a recruitment surge after their victories, and so um, they're probably much larger than they were when they started, which was between four and 8,000, but again, we, we, we have no clue. So ISIS is you know, a much larger organization, but it's not the only organization out there in Syria, for example. In Syria, we have about, oh, uh, 1,000 organizations. They fight each other, uh, and... Uh, among those 1,000 organizations, there's approximately 120,000 fighters. Mm -hmm. The largest of those organizations is an organization called the Islamic Front, with about 15,000 fighters. Okay? So we're going to drop uh, 5,000 fighters into this mess and expect them to be able to destroy the Islamic State, which sometimes, by the way, does... Um, have uh, alliances of convenience with some of the other groups as well, like Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the official al-Qaeda affiliate in uh, Syria. So the whole strategy is just, it's bad strategy. It's just not going to work. There's no conceivable way it's going to work. So what should the United States do? Well, when we get into a panic mode, our attitude is, uh, if, if it rears up its head, you bomb it. You right. <laughs> Uh, the bombing can be a support, although the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is now keeping track of civilian deaths, mm. which has gone over a, a score of civilian deaths 
as of two days ago. So who knows what they are now? Um, and the United States is killing civilians, which means it's other civilians are turning against the United States. Okay. The United States, is, uh, I, uh, the Islamic State, the Caliphate, whatever you want to call it, is not an existential threat to the United States. It's not like the Soviet Union was during the Cold War. Uh, Obama made the exact same mistake that George W. Bush made. He elevated, he puffed up the importance of a second-rate terrorist organization, a criminal gang, and made them into something that was internationally known, uh, uh, a rival to the United States. What the United States should do is basically say, to particularly to Jordan and Saudi Arabia, you know, this is really your problem. We'll help you out. But fundamentally, the southern border of Iraq is Saudi Arabia. Mm. Now, you can stop it. We've been giving you, selling you this military equipment. Yeah. You have a large army. You have a large national guard. You know, Jordan, too, large army, large national guard. You can stop this if you choose to. You know, uh, Turkey has been playing a strange game here. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, obviously... The Kurdish question is involved, but the Kurdish question is very, very complex uh, because there's, for example, Kurds who work with the Turks. There are the people now who are in um, uh, 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 the ones who are um, uh, really in trouble in, in uh, right across the, uh, the Kurdish border, uh, the Turkish border, who are um, uh, pro PKK. Uh, which is the group that the Turkish government has been fighting for such a long time, for decades, actually. So the Turks are in no hurry to help them out. Um, and they're in no hurry to raise the siege of Kobani, for example. So, uh, and today they began a major campaign against the PKK in, in Turkey itself. So um, they're playing a, a rather strange game. Yes. And somehow they have to be brought on board as well. But the most important people that have to be brought on board are the, uh, the Gulfies uh, and Jordan. We have Arab League that is not enamored by ISIS. We have a Gulf Cooperation Council, which has got F-16s, which has got the best American equipment, American equipment money can buy. We, have, we supply the Jordanian army. Let them do it. Yes. We have about two minutes left. So um, is there anything... I think what I'm hearing you say is that there are powers in the Middle East that can actually step in. What do you think has stopped them in two minutes? Because we stepped up to the plate. Period. So they would have to do something if we didn't. Exactly. Exactly. You know, why not? Uh, you know, it's freeloader syndrome. It's the idea that if the Americans are going to do this, man, let the Americans do it. And what we'll do is we'll send up, uh, you know, our only female fighter pilot, uh, who didn't drop any bombs, by the way, uh -huh. uh, you know, um, in the air to demonstrate, you know, that we're part of this coalition, which isn't the coalition, it's the Americans and a bunch of people that we were just stringing it along. That's usually the case with our coalitions. Yeah, well, it, it's worked that way in the past. But at least, you know, with the Gulf Coalition, the Gulf War Coalition, we got the Saudis to pay the bill. <laughs> so it seems like oh, the strategy needs to be to find a way to get the other guys to unite with one another to do something that they are loath to do but are dumping on us and, and we really can't. Yeah. 
I mean, look what happened in Mali uh, uh, a couple of years ago when um, the uh, area was being overrun by Al-Qaeda types and also people with, with Tuaregs who had legitimate grievances, okay? The French stepped in but immediately made sure that the African Union sent in troops as well. Mm -hmm. So that the African Union was had boots on the ground um, that were fairly effectively able to drive the Al Qaeda types out of Mali at the time. Since they've left, of course, uh, they've been they've come back in. But uh, the same sort of scenario should be done, um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, what's going on now in Iraq and in Syria. Well, we'll see from your mouth to God's ear. That uh, <laughs> that there is some will, and uh, that the political uh, differences, ambitions, and uh, struggles that are going on in the Middle East don't fragment them to the point that they can't do anything, and that we watch this continue to happen. So, uh, Jim, I hate to close, but we're kind of coming to the end of our time. Uh, James, why don't you give us a sneak preview of what we're going to talk about uh, next week, and then we'll go, come back and say goodbye to Jim. Very good. Our topic next week will be, being quiet can feel uncomfortable, turn it into an opportunity for peace. In an earlier show, just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about why it can be hard for us to sit still and how we use activity to block our feelings, both emotional and physical. On the emotional side, we went deep last time and discovered feelings that could compel us toward big changes. But we also discovered that silence brought us into connection with our bodies and our body's pain, anxiety, and distress. And we started to discuss how paying attention to those feelings could also compel us to question our livelihood, lifestyle, or life choices. Quiet can feel threatening, but it can also be divine. In this show, we will continue the conversation. Plus, we will share a different experience of stillness, transformed from a threat into an opportunity for peace the peace we need to face our pain, our anxiety, and our scary choices. Even if peace seems like an impossible goal, give yourself this chance. So tune in, call in, or use the podcast. As usual, Beth will guide us through her, through her insight, wisdom, and connection to the divine. And now, a final word from Beth. Well, I think it's kind of fascinating that our next show is about being quiet and what comes up for us. And uh, although we didn't get into this, and I know I'm going to be uh, calling on Jim to come back again because that l the end of our call has been so fascinating about, well, what is happening in the rest of the Middle East, uh, which we didn't really have a chance to explore. But for us, it is so difficult for us to be quiet, to be silent. There is so much churning and emotional distress and so much infighting and polarization within our own nation now, that it is very easy for us to get swept up by a cause that takes us outside ourselves. But in a fascinating way, I think that this time around, it's not working, that people are not happy to go to war, that, they're, that we're not getting all revved up and going off half-cocked, and that even those people who are acquiescing are just doing it more because they don't know what else to do than because they have really signed on to the idea that the United States knows how to rule the world. So um, tune in next week, and I want to thank you, Jim Gelvin, so much for coming. It's been so enlightening and fun. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'll see you again. 
And so until next time, this is Beth Green from the Inside Out. Thank you for making us a part of your week. Listen for the next edition of Inside Out with Beth Green and James Maynard next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.